You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. In the words of Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe in that. According to the working of his vast vast strength he demonstrated his power in the messiah by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand the heavens far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every thing every little every title given not only in this age but also in the age to come and he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of the one who feels all things in every way. Just, just sit on that verse. Just word for word and line for line, and then I can just sit down and we could just quietly meditate on that text. Every now and then I hear a story that stays with me, that impacts me, and I don't know how long ago, but long, long ago, I heard a story. It goes like this. Once there was a tree, and she loved the little boy. And every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves and make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And they would play hide-and-go-seek. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree very much, and the tree was happy. But time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was off and alone. And then one day, the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, come and climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in my shade and be happy. I am too big to climb and play, said the boy. I want to buy things and have fun. I want some money. I'm sorry, said the tree, but I have no money. I have only leaves and apples. Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have money and you'll be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered apples and carried them away, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came back and the tree shook with joy and, and she said, come boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep me warm. I want a wife and I want children and so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house. But you may cut off my branches and build a house. Then you'll be happy. So the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build his house, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time. When he came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered. Come, come and play. 
too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. Ugh, can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and you can be happy. And so the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long time, the boy came back. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. I cannot swing on them. Oh, I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. Oh, my trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. Oh, I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, said the tree. I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. In Shel Silverstein's book, The Giving Tree, I'm always reminded of Jesus, who, like the tree, and in the words of the Apostle Paul, emptied himself for us. He, just, he emptied himself for us. And yet I'm reminded that I have been, and many times still am, the boy who selfishly takes and takes. And yet Jesus gives and gives of himself out of love for me. He empties himself. See, Christianity calls the relentless giving and self-emptying of God's love grace. And grace is central to the gospel story because it's everything that we see in a God who on a cross empties himself. But if grace is central to the gospel story, why does it seem that Christianity has often become so graceless? Why, why are many Christians striving and straining to somehow earn our way to God or control life or control outcomes or control others or reduce the Christian faith to just good morals and ethics and beliefs about an abstract God. I think it's as Brennan Manning once wrote in his good book, The Furious Longing of God, I think, I think he says something that resonates here. He asks the question, how is it that we've come to imagine that Christianity consists primarily in what we do for God? How has this come to be the good news of Jesus is the kingdom that he proclaimed to be nothing more than a community of men and women who go to church on Sunday, take an annual spiritual retreat, read their Bibles every now and then, vigorously oppose abortion, don't watch X-rated movies, never use vulgar language, smile a lot, hold doors open for people and root for the favorite team and get along with everybody? Is that why Jesus went through the bleak and bloody horror of Calvary? Is that why he emerged in shattering glory from the tomb? Is that why he poured out his Holy Spirit on the church to make nicer men and women with better morals? 
says, the gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make brand new creation. Not to make people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within, who would live in greater fidelity to the omnipresent Word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. This, my friend, is what it really means to be a Christian. Oh, that'll preach. And this kind of life, a truly Christian, Christ-following, Christ-believing life can only begin when you and I settle on one profound, life-altering truth. And here it is the most important thing that will ever come out of my feeble, frail lips for as long as I shall live. And that is this. God loves you as you are and knows you as you are. He knows you best and He still loves you most. God loves you just as you are, not as you should be, because no one will ever be how they should be. We rejoice in who we are. Because in our confession this morning and the truth of the text that we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 10. And we used to walk according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority. We, we used to walk according to the enemy. Now, I'm sure none of us worship the devil. Some of us may have, but we walked according to his way. And we previously lived our lives among those who did the same, and we carried out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and we were by children. We were nature. We were children who were under wrath by God. And, but God, two of the most important, beautiful words, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, not because of us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. And we are saved by, say it with me, grace and together together with christ he raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages and here's the thing so that in the coming ages so that in the now he might display through us that he might display the riches of his grace immeasurable through his kindness to us in christ jesus well, you are saved by grace through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it's God's gift. It's not from your knowledge of systematic theology. It's not from your attendance of Bible classes. It's not for the good things that we do. It's because of his love. And we are made a new creation. See, in the gospel of grace, the scene on the cross of Calvary, we learn that our faith never begins with what we do for God, but what God does for us. It's grace. It's simple, reckless, untamable, unfathomable, unexplainable, relentless, scandalous, wanting to make us qualify all the time, grace. And this means then, church, this means that all you and I have is gift. All that is good is ours not by right or reward or entitlement, but by grace. All that you have, all that you have. 
See, you may think like the Israelites once thought that it was by your power and your ability that you gained whatever wealth or whatever stuff you have, but it's like the Lord said to them, remember, you only have the power and the ability because I gave it to you. It's all grace. It's all grace. Grace says all is a gift. All I have is gift. All I am is gift. All I'll ever become is gift. And as our Lord taught us, it's, this is what it means to receive the kingdom of God as little children because little children cannot do anything big enough or good enough to earn what God can give. It's grace. And so I ask you this morning, it's real simple. Like a beloved child of God, accept the fact that you are accepted, period. All that God asks of you and all that he really asks of me at the root of the greatest command is this one simple truth is that we be astonished that the God of heaven and earth even bothered to come after any of us. He asks us that we marvel at his love for us. And this is how we come to love a God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. We, we marvel at the love of God. We cannot do this through grander works or, or more Christian activity and more Bible studies and more prayer gatherings or better Christian habits. We, but by simply becoming astonished that the God of heaven and earth, the Holy One, loves me and accepts me and has pursued me like the hound of heaven, pulling me out of the filth of my own disobedience and disregard of his love revealed to me on the cross of Calvary, the bloody horror of Calvary that he endured. And Paul reminds us this when he says, look, you're saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift. It's not from works so that no one can boast. I cannot boast in my pedigree. I cannot boast in my wealth. I cannot boast in my knowledge. I cannot boast in my status. I, I can only boast in the cross to which the seductive pleasures of this world have been crucified to me. I to the world, I am to boast only in the cross. To boast only in his grace. God loves you and he loves me just as we are. Not what we should be. Because no one in this room will ever be how they should be. It's not going to get better. His love. See, the beauty of grace is that we're in worse shape than we think we really are. But God loves us best, knows us best, despite our unawareness, our lack of self-awareness of who we are. We, we can rejoice in that. It changes everything. There in Columbus, Georgia, God pursued me. Here in Williamsburg, Virginia, he still pursues me. And just like he pursued me right now in this place, from guest to member, from old to young, he's pursuing you. You were here to hear this message because you have to. You have to hear this message. Jesus found himself 
in a Jesus-like predicament. In the book of Luke, chapter 14, when he was invited to eat dinner at one of the houses of the leading Pharisee. I mean, this guy, whoever this guy was, was the man. Probably had a private chariot with private donkeys, horses. He was a well-respected one. And there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. And in response to this man whose body was swollen with fluid, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, you know, the ones who had all the theology books on their shelves, you know, the ones who taught Bible classes a lot, the ones who would have said, these were people of the Bible, this was the Bible movement, the ones who would have said that, that, that we just need to glorify God. Those guys who knew that stuff, Jesus saw this man. And he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? This is not like a hard question for the theologians among them. But they kept silence. He took the man, he healed him, he sent him away. And to them he said, which of you whose son or ox, whichever one you love most, I guess, falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. To this they had no answer. Now before you judge these Pharisees, the Bible, the Torah is pretty plain. You don't work on the Sabbath. See, the problem had become nobody really could define what work meant. They started wrangling over definitions. And when they started wrangling over definitions, it was people who got hurt. Verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited, and when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves, you know, because that's what we do, I want the chair that's most comfortable at the head of the table, I guess. I've done this. I'm a Pharisee. Verse 8, when you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't, re don't recline at the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. <laughs> Jesus acknowledges that. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in humiliation you'll proceed to take the lowest place. Clifton did that to me one time. But when you're invited, go and recline. Go and recline in the lowest place so that when the one invited who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus could have stopped there. Message heard loud and clear, Jesus. But he didn't. <laughs> Jesus didn't always stop when we wanted him to. He still doesn't. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you might be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a party, when you spend all that money and all those decorations and all that time on a party, 
like the fancy stuff? Invite those who are poor, crippled, lame, or blind. And you will be blessed. Because they cannot repay you. Or you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Years ago, after God awakened me to the reality of my sin and pride, my Christian faith radically shifted when reading the Gospels, particularly this story, that I discovered this one unalterable truth of the Gospel of grace. And that is this. Jesus sat at the table with anyone who wanted to be present. Anyone. From Pharisee to forgotten. It was then I realized that I'm not allowed to choose who sits at the table or specifying or what conditions they come. I've got to learn to sit with beggars, liars, cheaters, thieves, the sexually immoral, the rich, the poor, the artists, the engineers, the intellectually gifted and intellectually disabled, the Pharisees, the last, the least, the lost, the lonely, the left out. I, I've got to learn to sit with them because after all, I look at grace. And when I see grace and I look at my life, I remember that I've been a beggar, a liar, a cheater. I've been a thief. I've literally been a thief. I've been sexually immoral. Compared to many, I'm rich, but in a way different from others, I'm poor. I'm an artist, but I'm too dumb to be an engineer and not particularly intellectually gifted. And I've certainly been a Pharisee, and sometimes I still am. And in the eyes of some, I'm easily forgotten. So when I'm at the table sitting side by side, the others, I remember no one's really different here. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And this is the gracious host table. I'm only asked by the king and the gracious host of the table to be present. To marvel, to marvel, to marvel in thankfulness. Something I'd forgotten over the last several months, church. But to marvel in thankfulness and at the grace that I and all my sinfulness have been welcomed by him and humbly welcome all who accept the Father's invitation to come. For me, this was the essence of grace and it changed everything. And when I am not stubborn, it still does. Jesus says you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you for, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When Jesus says you'll be repaid, it's like Jesus is saying you've already been paid. Because it's grace, you'll be repaid. This is grace. You, you've been given it. You've already got it coming to you. So break the cycle of reciprocity. See, the work of God's grace in your life and mine isn't so we can smile and say, we've been saved from ourselves. It's so that we can finish the statement. And we've been saved and do something greater than ourselves. The work of God's grace in our life is to make us a more gracious people. And as I learn to rest in the grace and love of God, I learn to demonstrate the grace and extend love to others. And especially, and I'm quoting Jesus, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. People always ask me, why do you care so much for the poor, the homeless? People think that that's all I care about. I get that. I guess there's two ways to answer it. Jesus said I have to. But who needs presence 
Who needs presence? Who needs hope? More than a person. Who's always, for whatever reason, put on the margins of a people. can't think of anybody. I mean, because we all need it. Don't get me wrong. We all need hope. We all need presence. No, it's not contesting that. But we, most of us, not all of us, have family to fall back on, friends to call. All of us in this room who believe we have Jesus, and that's more than enough. But even I'm talking before that. See, I think that there's a reason why Jesus was always specific with the poor, the blind, the lame, the maimed, he, the crippled. I think there's a reason why he said, don't invite the rich and, and invite the poor. Jesus is, is doing something here. And it, it blows my mind. Blows my mind when Christians, when we, when we push back on that, and all it reminds me of is that we don't understand grace. Both the words of Jesus and his faithful follower Paul reminds us that if we're to do this life of grace, if we're to, if we're to receive, if we're to understand the depths of grace so that grace transform us, because grace is to make us more gracious, that we have to live in a constant awareness that there's not a single sin or failing that I and you or anyone else in this building hadn't been guilty of. I mean, at best, my faith is weak and my knowledge dim. And I'm always in need of God's grace. And so our faithful and holy God calls out to us because he loves us. And he comforts us and he forgives us. He redeems us and makes us new. And he gives us grace. And we bear witness to this grace. And when he gives us grace, I think Jesus does so in the hope that we would somehow by his power do the same to others. Not out of guilt and not out of obligation. Don't hear what I'm saying to be guilt and obligation. Hear what I'm saying. Please, in the name of Jesus, hear what I'm saying. That, that you are loved and known by holy, infinite, pure, gracious, good, powerful, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient God. You, you and I, we are. He's given us himself. And, 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 and then he just says, he says, look, rest in my love and know that the love I have for you, I have for others, but it's a, it's a particular love. It's not that I just love generic art and I love a generic glory, but I love art specifically, God says, because of all that he is and all that he's not, and I know what he can be and I see what he can't and I know what he doesn't, and he loves and he loves and he pushes in and he asks us, he says, I want you, I want you to let that transform you. I want you to know that you made new, you're made a new creation to become prophets and professional lovers, a new creation because I have these good works Paul said that's prepared for you prepared for you Shirley prepared for you George you the works that I have prepared for you that nobody else can do but you I have that for you and I want you to go and, and be a person of light and love and life it's amazing grace not disgrace And it's the amazing grace that changes the disgrace. And when we see our disgrace, an amazing grace comes in and turns that disgrace into amazing grace. We go out and we see the disgrace in others and we don't judge. We give grace. I cannot be self-righteously aloof in my own failure and to my own sinful plight. If I'm constantly aware 
of what I've been given in light of what I have. Things would change. I wake up every day to a woman I don't deserve. You know my story. I wake up every day to a little boy that I didn't even know there for a while we'd ever have. I get to wake up every day and talk about God in a very particular way occasionally. I get to work only one day a week. Sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I'm not as astonished at the grace of God as I should. Until I sit across the table from someone whose life was far worse than mine in my own mind. And I see God do some transformative work. And I walk away going, oh, isn't God good? Man, he really changed Paul's life. And then God says, <laughs> what makes you better? I mean, you were in your filth. And I say, you know, you're right, God. You're right. By grace, I've been saved. Saved from myself and saved into a life with you. Church, we're new creations. We're a new society birthed by the bloody horror of the cross of Christ, the miraculous wonder of his resurrection, called by God to become a community of passionate lovers and prophets, men and women surrendered to that love of God that burns within us. We commit to live in greater faithfulness to the God of all grace, to participate in his life, to participate, to join him. We've been invited to do this, to be with him in his work, his redemptive work, his redemptive work in this world that he is pursuing in love, this world that gives birth to rejected lives, stained with sin and covered in disgrace, so we, that through God's power, might be able to display God's amazing grace by how we receive and love all men and women. With, with, we, we live in a constant awareness that all is a gift. My breath, our bodies, our families, our jobs, our money, our time, this church, your friendships, all is a gift. If, if 50 years ago men and women hadn't listened to the Spirit of God, we would not be here today. And we have received it all, not by right or by reward, but by redemptive and restorative love. And as a grace-given people, we're sent out to be a gracious people. As a beloved community, we are to remain a loving community. As a people welcomed by God and gracious hospitality, we must be a welcoming people who extend gracious hospitality to Art and his family and to Paul and Heather and to all others who come. And as a redeemed people, we must work to let others know that Christ has redeemed them if they would repent and believe as a people pursued by God, we must join him in his pursuit of restoring lives. Years ago, God pursued me in all my sinfulness. He came to me. He still pursues me. He's got to. He's got to, or I will fall back head first into pride and selfishness and disobedience. And he pursues me and loves me as I am and not what I should be because none of us will ever be as we should be. And you, he pursued you long ago. I don't know where it started. But in all your sinfulness, he came to you. Think about where you were. He still pursues you. Think about when he's convicted your heart and awakened you, maybe even today. And as you hear it today, he pursues you. And as he pursues you and loves you just as you are and not what you should be because none of us will ever be as we should be. And yet all across the world, all across the world, God is in his pursuit of restoring lives. From Williamsburg, Virginia to Africa, God is in pursuit of man, woman, and child. And he's asked us, he's asked us, church, he created us. He created us 
to be mindful of that pursuit and join Him in that pursuit and to do it because we've simply been given grace. Have you received grace? Not very compelling this morning, eh? Have you been given grace? Let's be gracious. Let's join the hound of heaven into the lives of others sitting in the chair next to you at your workplace, your neighborhood, your school from Williamsburg, Virginia to Africa. Many of us sponsor children the Christian Relief Fund. Milton Jones, a dear friend and mentor of mine, he's the CEO of the organization. He's going to be here in a couple of weeks. International Orphan Month is happening in November. We've celebrated it the last four years. Orphan Day is November 2nd. We've celebrated that for four years. We'll celebrate it again. Because Christian Relief Fund works with AIDS orphans in 39 different countries. Francis B. and his wife, Consoletta, I talked about him several weeks ago. They're dear friends of mine now who visited us recently. Francis serves as director of the schools and medical facilities in Eldoret, Kenya. He's also a pastor. Francis is a witness of grace. Francis, as a Christian, saw AIDS orphans and took them into his own home until he couldn't have enough room in his home. And then he ran into Milton one day by God's providence, this white American man in Kenya, and then heard about Christian Relief Fund and Milton, who can never say no to kids, said, yeah, we'll take them on. And many of us sponsor kids, even right in Eldoret. Because Francis lives day in, day out to, lo- to tell these children that God is in pursuit of them. God is in pursuit of children like Zippor. Zippor is an AIDS orphan who attends a school in Eldoret. Her father and mother died of HIV AIDS, and her sister just died this last year. And since then, Zipporah has been sponsored by someone through CRF, which means for $35 a month, she gets all her medical facilities taken care of, all her medical needs, all of her education needs, all of her clothes. And her life is completely altered, and it was at least until her parents died. Because despite medical care and food and clean water and money to go to school, she's homeless. there are no orphanages in Eldoret, Kenya. One of the greatest schools in Kenya, the CRF school, which is called the Milton Jones Academy, they name things after people over there, is, is one of the top schools in Kenya. It's produced some of the leaders of Kenya. And despite the clean water and medical facilities, there's no orphanage. And so Zipporah leaves school, walks an hour to sleep in the slums, on the streets. And just last week, Frances told me she was taken by a neighbor while walking to school, which is about an hour away from the slums, and she was mistreated and beat. She was able to run away. But now every day she comes to school with scars. A teacher at the school took her in, despite the fact that the teacher had no room while she heals, but the poor has nowhere to go. God is in pursuit of the poor. Long before I ever knew her name. Long before you ever knew her name. See, then there's the Celestine. Celestine is also a sponsored child, and she lives in Eldoret, Kenya. 
She used to live with her grandfather until they lost their little hut due to medical expenses. And now those that she sponsored, they didn't have enough money to gain their hut back. So now she lives on the street with her grandfather, except I was told that recently her grandfather disappeared, leaving Celestine and her sister all alone on the streets. And just recently, some men captured them and abused her sister. Now her sister is pregnant and they both go to the school, but they have nowhere else to go. But God is in pursuit of Celestine. God is in pursuit of Roy and Rooney. Roy and Rooney, they literally have nobody. They're just on the street. They're just homeless. And Francis tells me that even though these children are sponsored by CRF, because they're homeless, some of them end up missing. And what I wanted to announce to you today on behalf of the leadership <laughs> is the opportunity to tell you we can make a difference. We can change this. Our church, we can change this. See, the reign of sin and death has stolen these children's parents and it's stolen their dignity and it's many of them rob them of hope and life but the reign of grace of God the reign of grace through God through Jesus Christ says that it doesn't have to be this way and we're witnesses of this grace and we're gracious people and we can change things see about a year and a half or so ago this church was about 174 5 76 thousand dollars in debt four years ago this church was over three hundred thousand dollars in debt we willed away faithfully, but about a year, year and a half ago, we were over $170,000 in debt, and we committed as a church through prayer and fasting, through the obedience of faithful saints, that we would raise that money and we would pay that debt off so we could do the work of God. And in one year, we raised every dollar by the grace of God and paid that debt off in cash, in full, this church with 30000 extra dollars left to boot. That's what we did here, by the grace of God. See, what I found out when Francis visited us is that those 200 orphans that are CRF-sponsored kids that are left at the beck and call of the enemy, that they can be completely and utterly housed. Which means when they go to school and they go to the doctor or they eat, they go to a home just a few minutes from the school, that they can be completely and utterly housed in an orphan home that will take care of 200 children for $105,000. Now think about that for a minute. It costs us $175,000 to pay off our debt. It would cost us $350,000 just to break ground in this churchyard to, to just begin doing the work of something here as a church. And one day we're going to have to do that as a church, probably, maybe. So we may have to break ground and at least do some classroom expansion. We can't afford the big thing because we talked about that. It costs way too much money. I mean, we're looking at millions of dollars. But the thing that struck us is how churches, we, we often will, will erect structures for churches so that we can be more comfortable four to six hours a week at like, you know, several hundred thousand dollars. But for $105,000, 200 children can have a place to live. I mean, that, that blows my mind and makes me sick in my, in my gut. 
And church, we have a chance to do something here. And we want to lay it before you. For three days of prayer and fasting this coming week, that we decide if whether or not we as a church want to set out over the next 12 months and trust the Lord for something profound and build an orphanage at $105,000 so that 200 children and countless children after them never have to get beat down on the slums again. We can change that story. We have the relationship with CRF. We have the relationship with, with Francis. We have the relationship with many kids. Many of our kids are sponsored. I just found out, guys, I just found out last week that the kid that Allison and I have sponsored for six years is getting kicked out of his home, and he's about to be homeless. I didn't even know this. Just we have a chance. This is the, these are the plans. These are the plans that they've had drawn up. And they, they, they've had it drawn up. And Francis, part of his trip in the States was he was going to kind of cast a vision. And, and he, you know, we were just hanging out. And he wasn't going to cast a vision to us. But we just started talking about the work. And this came up. And so they, they drew these plans up. And, and here's the first part of the plans. Here's what the building would look like. It's just it's nothing pretty. But it's completely functional. It's got a guest house for the person who will oversee the home. And by the way, the, the $35 that takes care of the kids each month will take care of all the home. They just can't build it. Because CRF is building new wells over there, and each well costs $10,000 to give the people clean water. But it'll take care of all this. And if you go to the next slide, here's what the inside will look like. All these kids will have a room. They can put four to six children comfortably in each room, which will inevitably house 200 girls and boys. So 100 boys and 100 girls on two sides of the location. If you'll go to the next slide, Dana. And so there's where, that's what it'll look like, these little cubes. That's what they call them as cubes. And it'll be right within walking distance of the school. For $105,000, the Terraquah Children's Home could be built. Terraquah is a name for a cedar tree. And the Terraquah tree in, in, in Kenya is used by people as shelters when it rains and shelters in the hot sun. The Terraquah tree is known among the people as a refuge. And so Francis called this place the Terraquah Children's Home. And church, we have a chance to do something. We have a chance to pray and fast and decide, God, do you want us, do you want Williamsburg Christian Church to build this thing from ground up? I mean, just, just bear with me just for a minute. Just think about it for a minute. Think, think about it. $105,000. A year ago, God raised $174,000 in this church. Just a year ago. This is just $105,000. They can change 200 lives. A year ago, God raised $174,000 to pay off this building so we can sit in it and use it through the week. The God of heaven and earth who told us through the book of James that pure and undefiled religion is this, that we look after widows and orphans and be unspotted by the world. I think that the God of heaven and earth isn't so interested in us asking if we're going to do something. It's only a question of how are we going to do something. And I think that the God of heaven and earth who was able to raise $174,000 in this church over a year's time is more than capable of building an orphanage that will house 200 children. I think he can do that. But we have to decide. Is the Spirit calling us as a church to do that? I know he's going to call us as a church to do something. 
And I only know that because of Scripture, but it, it, I don't know if it's to build the orphanage. So we commit this to you as a church. So Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, in your bulletin, in your bulletin, in your bulletin, we've asked you to commit to prayer and fasting, sun up, sun down fast. Choose coffee, choose food, choose banana pudding, whatever you want to choose. Choose something. And every time you go to get that something, remember that you're not going to eat or drink that something and ask the Lord, Lord, what is my part in this? What is our church's part in this? Do you want us to change the lives of these 200 children forever, literally forever, and over the course of the next year, build this home? Pray and fast Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and then Sunday, we'll get an affirmation or a decline, whatever the Lord's asking. We will listen to you, and we will go where the Lord leads us. For those who prayed and fasted, pray and fast and seek the Lord. Let us do that as a family. Our shepherds are available if you have any questions. I can answer questions. I can show you the details of the plans. I can tell you more, but I'm telling you that's what I know. That are, that are the details. Milton Jones has vetted it. Everything is clear. It's $105,000. We'll house 200 orphans, 100 boys, 100 girls. And by the way, here's the, here's the selfish part. If we were to do this and we start from November 2014 and write them a check in November 2015, it'll take them six months to build it. And by the time we take our trip to Africa, we can see the orphanage that we built. Let us pray and seek the Lord. Because really, church, we are a people of grace. We are saved by grace to be more gracious. How, my question, how can we be gracious to these children, the ones that Jesus said we have to invite to the party? How are we going to invite them? Let us ask the Lord. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, pray and fast. And we'll do what the Lord wants.